hour discussion with the leaders of our time. Let's join their journey and find out how they got to where they are today. Welcome to the Riddick Show. My name is Dave Kinley, and I am thrilled to have my first guest, Blake Hutchison, with us in studio today. Blake is the president and chief executive officer of OMERS, which generated $124 billion in net assets last year. And that bears repeating, $124 billion. Among his many successful roles and awards, such as Top 40 Under 40, Blake is an avid lacrosse player, and I can't wait to hear more about his story. Welcome, Blake. So perfect. Thank you for asking me to be here, dear friend. And um, I'm incredibly proud of your journey, too, by the way. And you've uh, demonstrated to all of us how resilience and perseverance are more valued than almost any other trait. So, yeah, no, listen, I'm a kid who grew up in Huntsville, Ontario. And um, and I was really blessed to have mentors early in my life and business mentors in addition to those who set the tone for me from a family and values perspective. My grandfather, who was probably my best friend as a kid, certainly in the adult world, uh, went off to the First World War and um, actually went to Naval College in England and small town guy and he came back and he said, you know what, I just got access to all kinds of European markets. I think there's a, a real opportunity. And he took a small planing mill that is his father had, and over the next 50 years or so, turned it into one of, if not Canada's largest hardwood flooring manufacturing company. And so the lessons he taught me have been absolutely invaluable in so far as he, when he was an old guy, he lasted till he was 94, said, if I could impart any wisdom to you, it's about the lessons of cycles. And he said, all his career, running his mills for decades, he never went to two shifts. He didn't want to ever fire people. And he never wanted his equipment to depreciate at a rapid rate. But he was a steady producer for decade after decade. And in the good times, his salespeople would quit. And in the bad times, he was the only one in the world with timber because he would stockpile timber to the skies. And he said, the cycles, Blake, as soon as it looks too good to be true... It probably is. As soon as there's no hope, load your gun, invest, invest, invest. This is a great country, and if you take that attitude, you're going to do okay in life. Now, how did he identify that area? You know, did he love just that piece of the country, and he just knew that others would fall in love with it too? No, it's, 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 it's like anything. I think we're slow learners as a family. His family went up there in the late 1800s, because there were land grants for farming, and they figured out uh, slowly that you can't farm anything but rock and timber, and anybody who tried to farm anything else, they'd go broke. And so his family found that out the hard way. So they eventually started a general store. They owned a local newspaper, started a small mill, and then he took that mill on steroids, and, um, and it was a unique product in the world, and... If Huntsville, Ontario has anything, it has land and timber, and he figured it out. And then my dad came along. We'd sold a lumber company when dad was relatively young, and he figured out how to mine rocks. He started an aggregate business that, um, again, from that little community, ended up being quite global in its context. His cash cow was local sand and gravel, building roads, things of that nature, but then he developed uh, some golf course sands that he sold throughout northeastern United States that were arguably the best for um, for sand pits, but also for top dressing. That became a great product. And he built a volleyball sand that became <laughs> the standard for the nation, including he sent people over to Speckett in Australia for the Olympics on Bondi Beach. So wow. here are two people from Huntsville, Ontario, who figured out how to, you know, with effort and energy and some imagination to take small businesses and take them on the road and and uh, build them out in a global context. So but what an exciting place for a kid. I mean, I remember as a kid, I wanted to go out into the woods, ride my bike and everything your parents are doing or what kids would love to do. Um, <laughs> 
But you, uh, how did you work for your parents as you sure. were growing up? And- yeah. So dad, dad's aggregate business and road building business was his main cash cow. And then we developed waterfront properties. And um, when we sold the lumber company, we, we kept land in that area. Dad would buy more and he'd build roads and farm waterfront properties. So I spent my earliest days on job sites with my dad or going out and helping him sell properties to various folks, mainly cottage lakefront lots. And so having been inspired by my grandfather's lessons of cycles and then inspired by my father's love for real estate and um, and building things, I would accredit those two really formative experiences to to what launched me into the real estate business and what launched me into a world that was greater than the local streets of Huntsville. And they both, they deserve all the credit. And I think anybody who doesn't have an appreciation for mentors doesn't get it. Mentors are absolutely transformational in what they can do for us. And whether it's a coach or whether it's a parent or whether it's someone in the community who takes an interest in you, it's absolutely essential. And I don't know too many CEOs, I don't know too many leaders who didn't have some along the way. And I don't think that any leader who has the blessing to actually lead something should ever uh, not take what's been given to them and try to translate it into others and take on mentees and and give back uh, for the great uh, privilege they had of having them. And I'm lucky. You were one of my mentees. <laughs> well, I don't know what I've that been, I've been very gifted, yeah. Um, but uh, so how do we, you know, how do you recreate and how do we help younger generation gain those kinds of experiences when they don't grow up in that kind of environment, when they don't have that kind of uh, uh, successful pedigree to learn from where there's natural mentors around them. Um, Is there any advice you might have for younger people and how to seek out those kinds of people? You know, I had a fire chief uncle. He wasn't a true uncle. He was my father's best friend. We called him Uncle Jack. He was a fire chief, not an entrepreneur. He was a mentor. We idolized him and Mm -hmm. he was giving back to the community. He was an icon within the town and, you know, not family, but somebody that we drafted off and learned from and appreciated. And so doesn't need to be family. You can eye people up from a distance and most good people, if you're young and you say, how did you do it? Or could you help me get somewhere? They'll listen. And so, you know, the other thing that's actually quite a virtue from a small town is they're microcosms for society. Yeah. And you do get the pleasure of seeing how the labor interacts with the business owner, interacts with the priest, interacts with the politician. You all live on the same streets. If my father got a big road job, he'd, you know, hire three more people. They'd buy homes in the community. There'd be a ripple effect. You know, if we needed help, you know, you could rally around neighbors. You could rally around local counselors to get things done and get them finished. And, you know, just having a view on how societies work in a smaller context, I think was a tremendous blessing in understanding how they would work in a in a bigger environment. That's a great point. But I think with any kid, right, you just look to those around you. They don't have to be affluent. They just have to be influencers. They don't have to be big players. They can instill values in, in really important small ways. And so I think uh, by just asking people for an assist or some advice or expressing a genuine interest in their life, I think you'd be surprised how many people would say come for the ride. Yeah, and and we just need more people to hear these kind of stories so that maybe they'll uh, take a bigger interest in giving back and seeing those younger people they can help. To uh, whom much is given, much is expected. You know, I, I, you know, I still marvel. I, I haven't met your dad many times, but, but I have seen him ski and... Uh, at an age where most people were uh, weren't around anymore, so he's obviously got some something in him that you all have. 
Yeah, um, dad, dad's a remarkable, a remarkable um, uh, freak of nature in many ways. He he had polio as a young person. Jeez, I didn't know that. Was told he'd never walk. My godfather wow. was in a wheelchair, uh, Wade Hampton, because he was one of the unfortunate ones in dad's cohort who never did walk after after getting it. They were in the Navy reserves, and it went through the Navy. And so he, you know, earned, learned early in life to appreciate everything, right? And he would wake up my entire life, throw open the curtains in the morning, <coughs> pardon me, and just say, hey, sun's out. What a beautiful day to be alive. Let's go. And so he's 96 this week. He is still incredibly active. He broke the World Book of Records, literally. We have a certificate at home <laughs> as the oldest water skier. And we certified him, and they presented it with him in his, around about his 94th birthday. I have huge admiration for anybody uh, who can take you know the heat and put their shingle out there and find a way to make it work on their own. My grandfather was one. My father was one. My brother, Scott, has been an he's amazing hugely, He's hugely successful as well. Amazing guy. And so they are, you know, they'd look at a CEO and say, you didn't take the n enough risks. You're working <laughs> for somebody else. And that's a fair comment. So I have that, I have huge respect for so many small businesses, you know, and small business people of all walks of life. Because that's a different journey altogether. You've taken it, and you know as well as anybody, the lessons, the cycles, you know, that uh, not every year is a great one. You can't get too far over your tips. And all those things are important lessons that um, that people have to recognize as trade-offs. Because for your freedom, i.e. nobody tells you where to be and where to go, you have to take a disproportionate risk profile. Right. And it's not a bad trade, but it's not for everybody. And you have to know yourself. No, no. Listen, we have sons that played soccer together. And uh, and I particularly remember, you know, having a discussion with you when you were uh, uh, starting your venture in New York um, and, uh, and how difficult it was to be away from Trevor, uh, your, your son, for... And missing some of those games that uh, you wish you were at, and the the, the tug of war it had. Um, how did you get through that? What were the things that you looked at that made you make the decision you did, which ultimately is, I think, to to come back home. Yeah. So my journey, for those who are out there, um, grew up in a small town, had the opportunity to go to boarding school. At, at Upper Canada here in Toronto for only grade 11, 12, 13. I remember showing up at school. My dad had a late model car uh, that was filthy. We pulled into the scrum of people who greeted me when I first arrived. <laughs> and I said, Dad, do you mind parking the car around the corner? Because these people are going to have a view on who we are coming from this little town. And he pulled right into the middle of the scrum. And he said, hey, listen... I'm going to keep driving this lousy car so you can go to the school. And if anyone judges us, they're not your friend anyway. And let me promise you something. A new car won't change my life. The day you walk through those gates, it'll change your life. That's infinitely more important. So I got given an opportunity to go to a terrific school through his hard work. Went to Western. Um, we can come back to I ski race on the varsity ski team. I was playing uh, junior and later major lacrosse. Um, but those were early years. Went to, came back, worked for the family. Went to London School of Economics to study international relations and comparative politics over in England, which was inspired by my grandfather, by the way, because he'd gone to Greenwich Naval College and we'd walked through memory lane many times through the streets of London. And he said, you got to go spend some time here. It's part of your education. Went back home developed a few projects with my dad. Then with the money I earned, I went down to Columbia University in New York. I took a master's degree in real estate development and saw the world in an incredibly, you know, massive, exciting environment and just decided, Dad, I can't come home. 
I'll be your business partner from a distance. Let's continue to do projects together, which we've done my entire life. But I caught the bug of going and doing something in a, in a bigger environment. I uh, worked in the development industry early in my career, bought into um, a real estate brokerage when the development markets subsided called CBRE, uh, which is today the largest real estate service company in the world. But we were a Canadian service company that ultimately sold to them. And there were a couple of older gentlemen who owned the majority of the shares. I bought in on a pretty cheap valuation because the cash on the balance sheet was about the way the shares were being valued. And if the company was worth anything, it was going to be upside. And they were older, sort of, you know, thinking about retirement. So they needed some young talent. And they gave me opportunities at an early age that very few people get. And so I was able through, and I won't go through all the details, but through a couple of uh, moves and decisions to be a CEO of CBRE in my mid to late 30s. Um, and that was a big responsibility because we took an organization from about 300 to 2,300 people yeah, it grew over like a the next ship. several years. And uh, I had a great team around me. It was a young person's game. Retired after leading it for close to a decade. And to your point, started a company with a friend of mine when we knew the markets would melt down. When the great financial crisis was on the precipice in 07, we said, let's go raise some money. Um, it's time for me to retire from CBRE. I loved it, but I was getting it was getting to be routine. And my great friend, Mark McGoldrick, who was my best friend at Columbia, had just left Goldman. We went for a walk in Central Park and we said, let's go try something entrepreneurial. So we set up a business from scratch. Uh, largely his relationships, by the way, uh, helped us launch. We raised about $3 billion in the marketplace. Wow. We hired 50 people in 50 weeks. We set up offices in London and Hong Kong and in um, New York, obviously, and ultimately Mumbai. And we started buying stuff cheap as the markets melted down, watching Bear Stearns blow up, you know, watching Lehman blow up, you know, on our watch. And that was the particular time in my life when I was commuting from Toronto to New York, away from my amazing bride and two kids. And that was a struggle because the, the glowing lights of going and making a lot of money on that platform um, were pulling at the heartstrings of somebody who wanted to be in his own country, in his own home with my own family. So I left there uh, a few years later um, and the money was raised. The thing was going in the right direction. Mark and I are still dear friends, but it, I was compelled to come home to become CEO of Oxford Properties. So they asked me to come back to Canada. Uh, Oxford Properties was a household name. I'd admired it my whole life. And frankly, that call was was uh, quite fateful because I, I I wanted to get back into Canada and wanted to uh, uh, take that organization to the next level. It was about $17 billion. This was January of 2010 of assets under management, $7 billion of equity, $7 billion of debt, $3 billion of third-party capital. We were about 95% invested here in Canada and um, highly retail and office concentrated. And then I ran Oxford for the next nine years. And we took that business from 17 billion to about 60 billion inside of nine years. I set a goal that we were gonna be 20, 20, 20, and 20, 20, which is 20 billion of equity, 20 billion of debt, and 20 billion of third-party capital. And we went on an amazing journey transforming a primarily household name, great Canadian organization into one of the, I think one of the best real estate companies in the world today. And um, a lot of people's futures. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. A lot of happy people out there. It was a lot of fun. We grew, we grew at 22 and a half percent. We averaged 12 and a half percent returns. By the time uh, my tenure was up as CEO, we were um, 
we were more like 30 to 35% Canada, 40% US, 20% Europe. And um, so massive diversification. We mm. sold down our book of office and retail and diversified into other food groups, hotels, multifamily, industrial. And half of the trick in life, and a very wise man once said it to me, Hal Jackman, if you want to get extraordinarily wealthy, put all your chips on one square. And if you want to stay wealthy, diversify. So every decision we took was to diversify the book, diversify by geography, diversify by the food groups, diversify by asset classes and exposure to sectors. So we built an amazing platform. Um, and we can get into the some of the stuff we did, Hudson Yards, which yeah, is the largest... Yeah, that's a fantastic uh, project if you haven't been in New York. It's a largest you go see it. development it's, project in, in American history. Yeah, it's incredible. And that's yeah. an interesting thing, you know, if you look at some of them, you know, some of the legacies that have developed in North America between the Rockefellers and and many others, Trump, that, that made their money through development, um, you know, where they've been able to be part of the fabric and the landscape of of a city or, or and how that, uh, I'm thinking back to when you were a kid and you got to see this whole town play out in front of you and how all the different parts came together, you know? And um, so when you were young, did you, was there a time when you knew that development yeah. or that sort of thing was something that you wanted to do or was it just your drive to, to keep, in your curiosity to keep on taking more that led you there. No, there was a formative project that, that probably changed my stars. And I was just back from the London School of Economics. My dad and I bought a small site uh, in the town center of Huntsville for peanuts. And there was a request for proposal to build a courthouse for the Ministry of Government Services here in Ontario. And I pulled together an architect and responded to this request for proposal, and we won. And it ended up being roughly a 10,000-square-foot building. And the strange part was you would never have done this deal in retrospect because it was short-term renewals of five-year and uh, five -year increments. Like, I would never do it. I, you couldn't get it financed today. It wasn't too swift, but we did it. We still own the courthouse today, by the way. And that was... Uh, you know, some 40 years later. And so we built this courthouse and we went to the bank to get financing and they effectively gave us financing that was for the full, I think the whole construction cost was 1.1 million back in those days. And they were prepared to lend us at or about 1.1 million. And I figured out you got cash against, against uh, value, not cost. And you get 100% finance out of project. By the way, I've never done it since, but real estate looked simple. So I was 25 years old. I built my first building uh, from scratch. And it, the same process to develop a 10,000 square foot building is the same process to build a multi-million square foot building. Right. And I learned it once early. And we, my grandfather was in failing health. We named the building the F.W. Hutchison Building. Wow. His picture's in the front hall. His family crest is on the front of the building. And as I say, we still own it today as a tribute to him. Yeah. And getting that early opportunity to do something, you know, small in the in the context of the bigger world, but big in my local community. It's a big and, vision for you at that time. You know, I, I remember my myself at that time. My grandfather was a neurosurgeon who had trained in, in UK. My uncle was a heart surgeon. My father was a general surgeon and chief of surgery at a hospital in Calgary. You know, and I was, I felt preordained, you know, to be a surgeon at some point. And I fought it like a dog. Uh, I, I just felt like I was getting maneuvered into something that that just wasn't meant for me. And my, I had an extraordinary mother who actually paid to get behavioral testing done for me and and all that sort of thing that told me I should go into business. But I still went into biology and have a degree in biology because I was about days away from deciding 
to go the medical route when I finally saw the light, but I felt like I was betraying, you know, our family at the time. It was a very, and I, and I watched my sons uh, struggle and my daughter struggle with the same thing. You know, how do you follow the footsteps of a successful parent um, without having to follow their path exactly? Sure. Well, first of all, you're a surgeon of, uh, of sport. You had an incredible surgical eye as an athlete, and you've been a surgeon of, you know, dissecting businesses and figuring out how to match humanity to those businesses. So you may not be cutting uh, skin, but you're cutting into a lot of fabrics in, in many other ways. So you do draft off a lot of what you were taught, even although it doesn't look like it on paper. And so, you know what, I mean, my, um, it's a very good question. Two of us went into the real estate business of, of the four siblings of my parents, the children of my parents, and two of us obviously caught some of that bug through, uh, you know, uh, watching others go. But my father had a passion for the aggregate business where he would love being out at one of his gravel pits and he understood the intricacies of the every belt on a screening plant or a crusher and could sort of eyeball where we've got wastage and where we're, you know, cutting proper three quarter inch gravel or whatever the product was we were making. I had zero acumen or interest in that stuff. And I'd sit there and say, let's, let's go play lacrosse. Like I'm leaving the pit. So that was his, you know, secret sauce. That was his main cash cow for his business and real estate was a byproduct. And so, but that wasn't my, my passion. And I think in many ways, he offered us an opportunity to work in that business. And none of his four kids said that's for us. And to his credit, he said, go find out what you love. And um, you're kind of on your own. I can help you with education. But thereafter, go find out what you love because you're going to be infinitely more successful at that. And he was right. And that's what you have to do with your own kids. You have to show them whatever it is you are dreaming about or working on, but then you have to say, hey, you got to go find your own dreams. And um, and that's the only way you're going to be great in life. And who's kidding who? You're not great at something unless you love it. And you don't love something unless you're great at it. And those two things are intertwined. And so you have to allow people to find their own thing. And, and our parents did. They showed us a few of the things that influenced our, our dreams but they, there was no prescription and, uh, and virtually no push. It just kind of happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately, that's my decision was uh, that I, I wouldn't have wanted to be what my father was unless I could be better than him at it. <laughs> and I knew I didn't like it enough to be better than him, so it was easy in the end run to go from that point. So, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, home. You you obviously still have a tug back there. You, uh, I know you're a fantastic skier. You were competitive. You still have a fantastic ski place uh, up north of the city. But you also were a fantastic lacrosse player, and you still play lacrosse. And, and having played a – I even was in a father-son's game with you where you almost – uh, rambled my son into the ground, so I know the competitive nature. And yeah, <laughs> that wasn't um, me. That where was are you? Else. Uh, you know, what sort of uh, with everything you've got in your life? You know, how do you make time to do those things? Yeah, well, listen, lacrosse has been a big part of who I am, and um, again, you know, you, I love the game. I loved the teammates that I had. Um, you know, I think I was a, a pretty fair lacrosse player, but there were always guys better than me on the team, and there still are, um, particularly now. But nonetheless, I did get given the chance to be a captain uh, of our midget team and then a captain in of our junior team. And those um, early formational opportunities were also just um, incredibly important in my own journey and when I went to high school I also had opportunities to captain um, in you know government leadership 
sort of things and, and in sport. And so I just got blessed with those opportunities early and they, um, they, I draw on those, on those experiences to this day in, in what I do. But in terms of the game, you know, listen, I played junior and then played a couple of years of, um, of senior and then realized that it was uh, perilous to think that I should be, you know, in fights, which happened often in that sport <laughs> in small towns across the province. And I needed my, my uh, cranium intact to go and carve out a living. And so I did quit at a point. And then this master's lacrosse appeared for 35 years and older. And a group of my friends called me in my 35th year and said, hey, there's, we're forming a team. It's a little more gentle, by the way. There's helmets, gloves, no equipment. I don't think it's quite as gentle as you make out to be. Well, it was, it's fun. And I've played the last 26 years. Um, so you can do the math from 35 <laughs> to today. With, the tip, with my Huntsville teammates, um, we, I'm dragging up the mean age at this point, but we have had a great run. We've won multiple provincial and Canadian championships and had a ton of fun. Wow. And it keeps me grounded. And the, the team are um, literally, many of them are Omer's members of my own team. Yeah. And, um, you know, some firefighters, some police, some who work for the municipal governments. And so they have my back on the floor and I've got their back on their on their pension. But it's just, it keeps me young. It keeps me grounded. Um, you know, I, I have to say I'm making an incrementally less uh, substantial contribution with each passing year, but I can still, uh, you know, make a contribution to the team, you know, in all respects. We have four or five tournaments a year, so we probably get between 16 and 20 games in. And it time. also keeps wow. me, you know, keeps me trying to stay in shape and keeps me trying to uh, earn my keep so that the boys don't put me out to pasture. So th <laughs> those are all things that are, have been, have been. but I love the game. And it's a huge part of who I am. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, that, it's that competitive nature of yours that just seems to bubble right beneath the surface. You use the term a lot, you know, through all of the different stages of your life that you were lucky to be given a chance. You know, you were given a chance. You were given a chance. I I kind of see it differently. I, I I see someone who recognized the chance and took it. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how to explain that to to somebody who who is striving to be a leader. And, and is there some insight into recognizing those chances? And yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think. Um... One thing that's patently clear is leadership's not a title. And that's something I've I've fundamentally believed in. And if you're asked by a coach to be a captain, that doesn't mean you walk in with the C on your sweater and people are supposed to respect you. That just means someone asked you to to help rally the troops and inspire and manage and on any given day other people are better. And on any given day, um, you know, you have to behave in a slightly different manner when you're called upon to argue with the ref or whatever it is. But in every walk of life, anybody who thinks leadership's a title doesn't get it. The day you're given a leadership opportunity, you have to go earn people's trust and respect with every interaction every day. And you, there's no shortcuts. You actually have to earn their trust and respect more than if you don't have a C on your sweater. And so you have to figure that out in life. And I've seen people get a new business card and say, okay, I'm the senior vice president of this or the executive VP of that or the president of this. You guys have to fall in line and follow me. No, the journey starts with the day you're given that. You roll up your sleeves and you go earn their trust and respect with every interaction. So I think that one thing is if you... If you forget that, I think you're you forget it at at a high cost. And I've seen that in business a lot, where people think, "Okay, now I've got the business card. I, I, you know, people have to follow." Uh, uh. 
now that you've got the business card, go earn it. So that's one thing. Um, I think in a business context, you, it is imperative that we all learn to manage up, manage across, and manage down. And managing up, because we all have a boss, whether it's a board, whether it's the person you report to, whether it's the committee you report to, whatever the weather. Managing up, if you don't get it right, the corporation suffers, and trust me, your career will suffer. So you have to figure out who the powers that be are above you, develop a respectful relationship, over-communicate. Managing up is critical. You don't get ahead if you don't do it, but it's not the only way to manage. You have to manage across. A lot of people forget that. They think that they don't have to build a relationship with their peers. They think that they might get ahead if they take out their peers. And the last time I checked, every time someone's asked for a promotion from someone above, the first thing they do is they go to the peers and say, can you work for this jerk? Or can you work for this person? And, you know, if you haven't managed across, I can guarantee you those people will submarine you every time. Right. And I've seen that happen so many times where somebody's exquisite at managing up, they forget the fact that their peers are going to weigh in on their future. And by the way, even if they are given the lead, they haven't earned the trust or respect of, of the peers. So it's, so it's hard to actually take the corporation to the new level. And by the way, you have to manage down. And that managing is different than leading, very different. Managing is, you know, blocking and tackling and doing things appropriately and responsibly, you know, and responsibly. And leadership's about inspiring, taking people to a whole new level. And so the obligation of anybody when they're managing down is to do both things. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of when you say, I genuinely believe I have been given opportunities and I've had to go earn their, earn people's truck trust with every interaction every day. But I also quickly have figured out that if you don't manage up, down and across, that leadership position will be quickly thwarted, thwarted, if not, um, if not taken away. And more importantly, even if you hold that position, you can't be a success without doing it. So those are, I think, I think those are two things. Um, recognizing leadership's not a title and recognizing that up, down, and across are all critical if given the nod. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, uh, you're a very humble um, person and that, and sometimes people uh, get confused with uh, confidence or overconfidence and, and how do you look confident and be humble at the same time? I think it, I, Truly think it's a gift. I've I've sat on hundreds of panels, you know, through the tech boom and others, where we're sitting with the smartest PE minds in the world and arguing about what it takes to be a good leader. By the way, never heard it described the same way twice by anybody in 35 years. So there are certain themes uh, for sure. But I noticed that what I love about you is that over the year, you always, you're almost like an, a, a writer. Your stories always revolve, revolve around people. You know, I remember when you, uh, you valiantly for, to raise money um, for a good cause, decided to do a comedy routine, <laughs> which I would have yeah, been shaking at the knees. I, I don't know crazy. how, yeah, how you did it, but, but you talked, you know, your routine is talking about your buddies. Sure. And, uh, and every discussion we've had in the last 30 years, when you try to set an example for me, or you give me some advice, um, always around people in the revolve back around people. And I, you know, in our business, I hear from every single CEO, I, that people are the most important thing, but it's very true. You know, very rarely do, do they live up to that? And, uh, and you can tell by the way they talk. And you talk about people a lot. Well, listen, I mean, the first of all, when you, when I left Oxford, um, and Oxford's 100% owned by Omers, um, the Omers board said, would you, would you consider coming in and, and, you know, being in contention to run Omers? I actually put them off for years because I loved the real estate business so much. And after nearly 10 years of Oxford, I thought it was, 
time for the next generation to run it, and I I could see the opportunity here at Omer's. But the you know the day I left Oxford, and I, I remember speaking at the Canada Club, people said, "What do you remember?" And we built a leaden hall, a building in England called the Cheese Grater, six hundred and twenty thousand square foot building designed by Sir Richard Rogers. Spent five hundred million pounds building it. We sold it for one point one five billion pounds. We had a 50% partner, but we made a billion and 50 million Canadian dollars on a single building. We did, you know, again, Hudson Yards, biggest development project in American history. Uh, we bought the Sony Center in, in Berlin, which is the largest multi-use and most exciting project, I think, in urban Germany. Yeah, uh, tremendous. And, you know, so a bunch of these things. But by the way, honestly, people said, what do you remember? It, it's the people. It was the friendships we built, the team that we had, the parties we would have celebrating some of these successes along the way, the hardship we went through. You know, honestly, that was what I remembered. And it'll never be about the things in life. It'll never be about those specific business accomplishments in life. It'll be the relationships you have and with extraordinary people who teach you more than you teach them and who are truly your partners. Mm-hmm. And so I genuinely believe that to be true. And, you know, people are our most important asset. I mean, we, we've got $125 billion of equity invested in the markets today in all asset classes. Levered, it's over $200 billion. And, and how do you deploy capital? Great people. How do you unlock alpha? Great people asset managing things. How do you, you know retract and retain the best, you know, culture and the best people in the markets in which we choose to invest. It is, it is all about humanity setting the tone and it is all about people. And none of those buildings that I talked about would ever have been built without great people. None of the assets we have at Omer's would ever be what they are without people. So if you don't understand that, you don't really understand investing or any other business. It is a hundred percent true that People are the most important asset. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, and I'd be negligent actually not to uh, to talk about your lovely bride Sue. She's uh, she's an incredible person, and uh, and normally when I get together with uh, with CEOs again, just generalizing a little bit, but for the most part, they want to jump right into uh, talking about business and and what you 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 know our discussions always start off with our families and our wives and and our and our kids um i know you met if i remember right you met early on and you were interested in her but it took a <laughs> while um where where did you guys end up meeting and when, yeah, never, when did you finally convince her you were the right person as i met her in high school i thought she was lovely i thought she was fantastic so i watched from a distance, you know, 10 years go by, we would see each other tangentially at parties or in certain environments. And I'd be going one direction. She'd be going another. I did see her at a wedding where two of our great friends were getting married and I was an usher and she was a bridesmaid. And, and then ultimately it was in 92. I was told she had been, uh, she was free after a long time relationship. I called her for dinner, and we've been together ever since. And the uh, so I think I had a crush on her for at least a dozen years before I actually got <laughs> to take her out. Well, and, like everything else, you took a long view on it. And- well, and she she was she's the best thing that ever happened to me. Honestly, I call her Sue ninety two. We met in ninety two. We've been together ever since. I remember phoning my dad a week after we went out for dinner. I said, I just took the mother and my children out for dinner and he guessed four names before he got that one right. He hadn't met her yet, but she's a marvelous human being and a marvelous person and a marvelous mate and mother. And I just hope we get to, you know, keep growing old together because she's, uh, you know, as I say, she's, we are a total team and we're, we're lucky to have found each other. Uh, And you got great kids as a result. uh, What's next for Blake? You know, to me, a quarter is not three months in this space. It's 25 years. And we ended up delivering a close to a 16% return last year, which was over $16 billion. 
And to put that into context, the largest public company in Canada is, is RBC, and we made more money than than an RBC. Wow. Um, which is kind of interesting. With 3,000 people, 2,000 at Oxford, 1,000 at Omer's, it's a very different business. So let's 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 be very fair to the uh, contextual comparison. It's not a fair one, but it does show you the economic might of of this platform called Omer's. Yes. And so it was been. So I'm just starting this journey. Listen, I'm I'm uh, two years into it. I've got an amazing board. I've got an amazing team of. 14 leaders, actually, six yeah. six who report directly to me, but 14 as a team, highly diverse, geographically, culturally, educationally, ethnically, you name it. Yeah. And we are making better decisions as a collective. I treat them, I don't treat them, I think of them as partners because we have equal and opposite strengths. Um, society's not about somebody just because they have the business card telling everybody... You know, it's a hierarchical game. We actually do treat it much like a partnership. Well, and it hasn't always been that way. I, I, You know, you've put in the work and you say that there was that tough six months and you were dealing with people's pensions and you had some hard results. But I know that when you started at Omer's, you know, you, you did tell me that one of your visions was to get closer to your clients. Oh, that's 100% and, true. And so... I would imagine that work had already started and that did make that path a little bit easier. And and one of the re, the reasons that we put this podcast together is to help transfer some of the knowledge from great people leaders to our next generation of leaders and to excite younger leaders to continue to want to be a CEO. And I, I think the people part comes forward so clearly in you and and that's important because there are many being scared off, you know, just maybe to end our day here together, uh, something a little bit broader. And that is that, you know, there is a shrinking pool of, of a CEO population in this world uh, for many different reasons that we all could go into for hours and globalization and diversity and competition and different work lifestyles and wants, um, it's all come together. Um, so we need to grow um, uh, a bigger pasture um, for these young leaders to thrive in. And uh, you, um, you understand now probably better than anybody that even though it's shrinking, people are expecting more and more out of their, they're, they're not trusting media as much these days. They're not trusting their political leadership as much. So they're actually turning in many ways to our leadership in business to explain how we're going to get through all this. And how do you feel about that? And how do you feel about the responsibility? Yeah, well, I, I think, first of all, I think I've, I think it's is my twenty second or twenty third year as a CEO, mm -hmm. um, and when I first got that opportunity at CBRE, um, the expectation was to deliver results, keep your head below the hedge, and um, you know, and things were largely internalized, and the information age didn't reveal your strengths, your weaknesses, your profits, your losses, so you really had sort of a family business mindset where you could, you know, keep your laundry indoors and and just um, strive uh, with, within the confines of an organization. Today, with the information age the way it is, every utterance that you have in whatever small venue or large is on your record for life and goes out with you know, concentric circles globally often. And I'll give you an example. I was in Sydney last week and then Singapore and then London. And I got home Sunday night, so two days ago. I spoke at the Milken Institute in front of 150 people, small collective in a very big conference. And, you know, you lest you forget, Bloomberg was there. So they article went out from Bloomberg, which literally hits billions. Mm -hmm. 
and the Canadian press picked up and verbatim quoted, you know, significant portions of my speech. So you're in a 150-person room, and all of a sudden you have access to billions, whether you know it or not. And so none of this was even fathomable, you know, a decade or two ago. And so with the, with the information age and the thousand points of media attention and the complexity that that adds to the job, um, you know, let's just start with that. If you don't have great comms people, if you aren't jealously protecting your brand, and if you aren't consistently trying to find new ways to communicate, you're SOL. So today communication is essential in a leadership role. So that's one thing that didn't exist. ESG, you would ignore at your peril. I don't care who you are, what size of an organization. That wasn't so, you know, not so long ago. Inclusion and diversity is very much on the forefront of every board of every utterance from anybody who's in a position of leadership. That's fairly new. And, you know, let's just look at the complexity of size. So today, Omers has a thousand employers. We have 444 municipalities. We have two different boards, one responsible for overseeing the work I do, investing and managing the plan, another board that's responsible for benefits and contributions. We have 30 significant unions and stakeholders. We have, call it 3,000 people, but with the investee companies we have, it's closer to 25,000 people. We have 10 global offices working in 15 different, different time zones. We have $55 billion invested in credits and equities. We've got 25 or so billion dollars of equity invested in 30 great infrastructure businesses, including Bruce Power here in Ontario. We own half of that, largest nuclear plant in the world. We have 25 great businesses through private equity. We have 180 investments in, in ventures and growth. Oxford today is a $75 billion platform with 850 assets around the world. Wow. You don't and have much got, to think about. But that's a complex joint, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you, um, you, how do you approach it when in the information age when you've got, you know, a big family is how I look at it. Every day in a big family, you've got good news and bad news. And every day in a big family, you have to try to insulate the team from the difficulties and allow them to do what they want to do. And so, I don't know, David, I think that any of us who are in a position of responsibility have to do two things. We have to look up and then provide a friction pad for everybody who works, you know, for you and try to insulate them from whatever whatever the world serves up and allow them to go do what they need to do. And you have to bear the shoulder burden of, of the difficulties. And, you know, then somebody else does it for their people and somebody else does it for a different division. And so you can't take on the responsibility lightly. Now, having said that, there's no better purpose, no better way to make your society better than how you found it and no better opportunity to actually see your dreams get translated into realities than, than being asked to be a CEO. And so um, that you know, balance sheet of responsibility and friction against opportunity to change to me is a very simple one. In the right environment, it's a great trade. It's a great trade to take it on. Right. You know, and, and I think, you know, if you... Um, if you look at most significant CEOs, there's a great book by Simon Sinek that was written a few years ago called The Infinite Game. And what was interesting in that book is, and it's true, I think, you have finite games and infinite games in life. When your kid and mine play soccer, the whistle blows, they play a game, somebody wins, somebody loses, we put them in the back of the station wagon, we go home. If you play chess, it's an infinite game. If you, you know, any sport, you it's, it's, it's over and out and somebody wins. The game of business is, and, and those are finite games, I'm sorry. Those are finite games. The game of business is an infinite game. 
it's never over. Right. You know, you start with a certain balance sheet. You walk on the shoulders of those who came before you. You take what was served to you. And then your job is to, my words, not anyone else's, leave the campsite much better than how you found it. And you can't take responsibility for short-term successes. Any decision that I'm making today actually doesn't translate into something meaningful meaningful for three mm-hmm. years. You know, and when people say great results, well, I go, well, those, that's from decisions a couple of years ago. You can judge me from the decisions I make today, three years, you know, two years, three years hence. So I find the best CEOs don't take responsibility for what the organization becomes. They don't define themselves by the period of tenure that they have the opportunity to lead. They actually define themselves by the legacy that they leave with people and how they address the hard problems during their time in order to set it up for future generations of success and how they've left the campsite better than how they found it. And that takes humility because you don't um, necessarily get to relish in short-term successes. But if you can go out knowing that's how you left the place, I think you have made a difference. And, um, And anybody who wants to take on the opportunity to lead the dividends are massive, and that's not in terms of the money in your pocket, but it's the legacy you leave. Right. No, and and I've probably created a huge lineup at your door for people who want to mentor today. <laughs> but we don't celebrate. Uh, we celebrate uh, basketball players and hockey players and movie makers, but we don't we don't celebrate our great business leaders enough. And and they create jobs. They uh, we spend most of our working life you know, uh, our our daily life in general at work. And so it's important that there are people that are guiding us and creating cultures that we enjoy to be around and that we can flourish in and, and that will influence our, our young. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for you to come around. There is about 30 other things I wanted to go through today, (laughs) but, uh, but maybe we can get you back, uh, in another time, but, you know, we the purpose of this show is to celebrate the best leaders in our market. Um, it's also, more importantly, to help people, uh, incent people to be CEOs, our, our younger generation, and even people right now that are in leadership that are debating whether they should take that next step to the CEO level um, and to tell them it's worth it because there are good people that do it and and that have great results because of it so um and and finally you know i want uh, the show really came out of the idea of writing a book and i've read so many books on leadership and they're they all start to kind of come together and and i always feel like there's always a great nugget in each one of them somewhere and my hope is that through these weekly conversations with great leaders like yourself that people will take out the nuggets and the common threads to the great leaders um, over a period of time. And then that will create another huge flock of, of great <laughs> leaders as we go forward, because we desperately need them. Well, it's so. interesting, right? The it, I've watched leaders read books and, and this isn't, um, this isn't, you know, in any way derogatory in terms of your comment, um, no, I'm but, just a very but, curious person. And we all should read, right? We have to, I read biographies. That's my thing. Cause I love seeing history through the eyes of an individual. I've got, me as well. I've got, yeah. you know, that's my whole library is, is biographies. But the, but the truth is I've watched people go read a book and then they try to be that. Right. The, and they try to say, oh, I've, I've read a book on, you know, digitization. So that becomes their refrain for the next several weeks that that's the nirvana and that's what's going to transform the organization, blah, blah, blah. And the truth is we have to read and you have to take nuggets out, but the only way to lead is to be authentically you. Right. There is no formula. If you are unauthentic, inauthentic, people will suss it out a mile away. Mm-hmm. 
And as a wise person told me early in life, you have to be your best self because everyone else is taken. <laughs> and so don't try to be anybody other than you. Absorb what you read, absorb what you hear, but then take it and make it your own and um, and live it and breathe it and be that individual. And, and that is the key to success. And people who are comfortable in their own skin or genuinely themselves, people can 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 feel it and sense it. And you know, well, we often well say, said. you know, well we said. often say, you know, business travels at the speed of trust. If they don't think you're authentic, it's hard to trust. And if they don't think you're, you know, you genuinely mean what you say and say what you mean, and that your handshake means something, it's hard to get trust. And the same is true with your partnerships outside of a business, but it's infinitely true with those with whom you have the privilege of working inside a business. Mm -hmm. So those are all thoughts. And So how do you want to be remembered, Blake? You know, you're not, uh, I don't think you could ever, do you imagine you're just too humble a person to have a, a Blake Tower or a Blake <laughs> Institute? Um, you know, what? how do you want to be remembered? Oh, I think you're going to be um, the only thing we leave on the planet that's unique because everybody can have a nice car, a nice house, if they're fortunate, is our kids. I mean, the day we disappear uh, from this existence, the only thing that's left is the, the, that are our kids. But I'll extend that to say, you know, the greater community that you served, worked with, worked for. And so the legacy really is just the actions and memories from the people that we that we leave behind. And hopefully, you know, you've influenced some lives and made the made your walk on the planet a better place. You know, I honestly think this is the greatest country in the world. I honestly think we have been given um, massive natural resources, our freedom, our democracy, and an opportunity that's unlimited. And, um, you know, and in that context, I think, you know, I'd like it to be said that I was a family person who made a difference, that I made a difference to my, to my country on some level, um, that I made people money. It's kind of a funny thing to say, but not about what I took out of it, out of the past, but that when I was a custodian for people, I, I delivered. And, um, and uh, I want my kids to walk with their head high. Yeah. Well, I think you can relax a little bit. You've probably hit most of those buttons already. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure there's people in this studio right now that are glad they've had the chance to listen to you for a couple of hours. I've had a, a great pleasure to have these moments with you more than this one time. So thank you very much again for being on The Riddick Show and for, for uh, taking the risk to be here to talk to us today. Well, I'm proud of you, my dear friend, and thank you for, for making this um, available to me and, more importantly, others available to your, uh, your followership. And hopefully it's not a complete waste of time. So God bless to and you and your bless. family. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the RDK Show. Stay resilient. Find us at RDK Show on social media. But the but the truth is, I've watched people go read a book and then they try to be that, right? They'll, and they try to say, "Oh, I've read a book on you know digitization," so that becomes their refrain for the next several weeks. That that's the nirvana and that's what's going to transform the organization. Blah blah blah. And the truth is, we have to read and you have to take nuggets out. But the only way to lead is to be authentically you. Right. There is no formula. If you are unauthentic, inauthentic, people will suss it out a mile away. Mm -hmm. And as a wise person told me early in life, you have to be your best self because everyone else is taken. <laughs> and so don't try to be anybody other than you. Absorb what you read, absorb what you hear, but then take it and make it your own. And... um 
and live it and breathe it and be that individual. And, and that is the key to success. And people who are comfortable in their own skin, who are genuinely themselves, people can, can, can feel it and sense it. And, you know, we well, often say, well you know, well we said. often say, you know, business travels at the speed of trust. If they don't think you're authentic, it's hard to trust. And if they don't think you're, you know, you genuinely mean what you say and say what you mean and that your handshake means something, it's hard to get trust. And the same is true with your partnerships outside of a business, but it's infinitely true with those with whom you have the privilege of working inside a business. So those are all thoughts. And So how do you want to be remembered, Blake? You know, you're not, uh, I don't think you could ever, do you imagine you're just too humble a person to have a, a Blake Tower or a Blake <laughs> Institute? Um, you know, what? how do you want to be remembered? Oh, I think you're going to be, um, the only thing we leave on the planet that's unique, because everybody can have a nice car, a nice house, if they're fortunate, is our kids. I mean, the day we disappear uh, from this existence, the only thing that's left is the, the, that are our kids. But I'll extend that to say, you know, the greater community that you served, worked with, worked for. And so the legacy really is just the actions and memories from the people that we, that we leave behind. And hopefully, you know, you've influenced some lives and made the made your walk on the planet a better place. You know, I honestly think this is the greatest country in the world. I honestly think we have been given um, massive natural resources, our freedom, our democracy, and an opportunity that's unlimited. And, um, you know, and in that context, I think, you know, I'd like it to be said that I was a family person who made a difference, that I made a difference to my to my country on some level. Um, that I made people money. It's kind of a funny thing to say, but not about what I took out of it, out of the past, but that when I was a custodian for people, I, I delivered. And, um, and uh, I want my kids to walk with their head high. Yeah. Well, I think you can relax a little bit. You've probably hit most of those buttons already. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure there's people in this studio right now that are glad they've had the chance to listen to you for a couple of hours. I've had a, a great pleasure to have these moments with you more than this one time. So thank you very much again for being on The Riddick Show and for, for uh, taking the risk to be here to talk to us today. Well, I'm proud of you, my dear friend, and thank you for, for making this um, available to me and, more importantly, others available to your, uh, your followership, and hopefully it's not a complete waste of time. So God bless to and you God and your family. You okay, thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the RDK Show. Stay resilient. Find us at RDK Show on social media.